Okay, hi, uh, my name is Cassie and I'm the Senior Manager of Programs at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies and would like to welcome you here this evening. Thank you so much for, for making some time and space to be with us. Uh, I'm just gonna share a really quick um, introduction about some of the tech and um, details about being here. Um, like Jay mentioned, the chat, I'm sorry, the mute button is not, you're not unmutable. So uh, just cause it's a large group, but the chat is open. So if you have anything you need to share, um, please use that. Um, we ask that you're just, you know, using wise speech and being kind in the chat. Um, and if you're having any tech issues, feel free to chat me directly. My um, name in the, well, my name is Cassie, but my name here is BCBS Zoom support. So you can find me um, under the list there. And you can also send an email to contact at BuddhistInquiry.org um, and they can help you there if you're having any trouble. Um, so just a couple things. Um, if you'd like to see a transcription of the talk tonight, you can enable a live transcription, which is, um, well, on my computer, it's down, sometimes it's up, but there's uh, some buttons um, to, uh, to, to enable it there. So you can click more down at the bottom and enable live transcription. Uh, so on some computers, there's a little CC and that would, um, that would turn it on there. Um, Sorry, I'm just getting my little slide, which should be up, but um, okay, I'm going to share a slide with you now. Um, okay, can everybody see, no, can everybody see this slideshow? Yeah, cool, so welcome. Um, to. Thank you for being here. Um, so I'd just like to give a land acknowledgement of the Nipmuc people. Um, the Nipmuc people uh, were stewarding for many generations the land on which BCBS now stands in Barrie, Massachusetts. So when we start our programs, we like to um, continue, uh, we like to give an acknowledgement of the people there um, to respectfully uh, give our thanks. Um, I already said about the live transcription, if you'd like to rename yourself, you can do that with the little dots in the top right. Um, if you uh, want to use your, well, this isn't really relevant, so we're not unmuting. Um, and um, if you do share anything in the program, please know that we're in a confidentiality container. So there's a Q&A later that might come up. Um, the chat I already explained, and this meeting is being recorded. So um, if you speak later, please know that um, we can't edit that out. So um, that's all there. And I'm just gonna give a very quick, oops, I'm not sharing anymore, right? Okay. Um, going to give a very quick introduction um, to Jay, which, Sorry, I had this up and then it went away. Okay, so um, welcome Jay. Rabbi Dr. Jay Michelson has taught meditation for 20 years in Buddhist, Jewish, and secular contexts. He's currently an editor, editor at 10% Happier, the meditation startup, as well as a columnist for The Daily Beast. Jay is the author of 10 books, including Evolving Dharma, Meditation, Buddhism, and the Next Generation of Enlightenment, and The Gate of Tears, Sadness, and the Spiritual Path. He holds a PhD in Jewish thought from Hebrew University, a JD from law, uh, Yale Law School, and, a non, um, and also a non-denominational rabbinic ordination. Jay was a member of the BCBS Board of Directors for six years, which we loved, and um, was authorized to teach Jana and the lineage of Ayakema by his teacher, Lee Brasington. So I'm gonna hand over the floor to Jay. Please feel free to chat me if any tech stuff comes up and enjoy. 
Thanks, Cassie. And thanks to BCBS for always creating such a heartful container. Um, like Cassie mentioned, I was on the board at BCBS for a while, uh, kind of before and during and just barely after the heart, the, the heart of the pandemic. And it was just so heartwarming to see the BCBS pivot to so much incredibly good online programming and reaching so many people at an hour of really in, in intense need and seeing the consolations of the Dharma uh, being shared so widely and with a much broader range and more diverse range of, of people than in, in, ever before in BCBS's history, or I think actually in any large Buddhist center's history. It's just an amazing thing to watch unfold. And Cassie was a, a big part of that. So just thanking you for that. Um, we're going to sit in just a moment, but before we do that, I'll just give a little roadmap of uh, of this this time that we have together. First of all, thank you uh, for coming. It's um, kind of awesome how many people are signed up for this uh, class, of course, when there's no registration fee, but we had like over 200 people register. So even if not everybody is able to make it, that's really um, wonderful and maybe speaks to the significance of the topic, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, after the sit, uh, which will just be a couple of minutes just to ground a little bit, um, there's really three parts to today's session. And so we'll kind of go through three aspects of uh, Yom Kippur for Buddhists. And then there'll be a little bit of time for Q&A at the end, again, because of the sort of large class size, unfortunately, we won't have quite as much. But uh, in the second of the three parts, there'll be we'll do a, a short breakout room session and encourage you to get to know, you know, four or five other people who are here with you uh, during that time. So hopefully there'll be a little opportunity for a personal connection in that way. And yeah, let's get started. I'm really looking forward to this evening. So I'm going to start by inviting us to just sit for a little bit. Um, I am could really use this myself. I am going to close my eyes and allow a little bit of a longer exhale on this next breath. And with that exhalation, I notice my body settling in to where I'm seated. Notice the weight dropping a bit, that earth element. And just bringing the body to some kind of stillness. And in that stillness, without any effort from me, any conscious effort anyway, the movements of the breath naturally arise and pass. So I don't have to force the breath or I can do another deep breath or deep exhale if I feel like it, but I don't need to. I can just allow myself to be breathed in this moment. And kind of allow the mind to settle on these sensations of the body and maybe the heart to settle there too. Just checking in what feeling, what emotional feeling is present at this moment. And welcoming that, as Sylvia Borstein says, welcoming this moment as a friend. So even if it's a somewhat difficult emotion or physical sensation or whatever, just allowing myself to maybe greet it as a friend.
one way I learned about a kind of attitude or posture of holding our experience with love and with compassion came actually in a Jewish context. A friend of mine who's very active in recovery kind of translated some of the wisdom of 12 step into meditation and Jewish meditation in particular, which is to just leave everything to, he used the word God, leave, leave the, leave the stuff to God to do the carrying. I can place down my burdens when I sit. And it doesn't really matter if there's a belief around that word God. It's just not the me, not the I, not the selfing part. That part is great. All parts are good and valuable. But that part doesn't have to carry whatever is happening. And that can even be true on a micro level just in this little sit. I am breathed without my effort. And I'm present without a lot of effort. And the rest I don't have to hold for this moment. As the attention wanders, gently bring it back to these physical sensations of the breath that some of us are probably very familiar with, that basic movement of mindfulness meditation. For some of us, it might be new. But we can see if we can meet the distraction as a friend also. welcoming that part as well, obviously using the language of internal family systems. And I'll just sit for a few moments, a few seconds more. And as we close, maybe connecting if there's an intention that you're bringing just for this period of time together, this next 75 minutes. You can bring that to the front of your consciousness as well. Might be looking forward to this ritual communal observance, dreading it, <laughs> dreading years past, loving years past, all of the above. And with that, I'm going to open my eyes and invite you to do the same. So I want to start our time. I'm going to do a little more of the talking just for this first part with, um, a, with a couple of ironies about this week. 
Um, one is that in the American Jewish world, Yom Kippur is either the most or the second most widely celebrated holiday of the Jewish calendar. Um, it competes with Rosh Hashanah and, and also with Passover, actually, uh, with, with Passover Seder. And the irony is that this is like the most attended day of synagogue services of the year. And for me and for many other people, it's the least relatable. I often, especially when I was a little bit younger, I, I wished I could go around the synagogue where I grew up, which was like a standard kind of conser American conservative synagogue and urge people to leave and come back on a better holiday. <laughs> so like Sukkot is coming up next week and it's a wonderful festival. It's pagan. It's about the cycles of the earth. It's harvest, right? It's kinesthetic, right? You're eating. It's And then modern Sukkot can also be about environmentalism and ecology. Like these are really nice themes, <laughs> right? Um, and that's just the one coming up next, right? How the Passover holiday of freedom and liberation and what that might mean for us today, right? Shabbat is a time of rest and non-doing. These are such good themes in the Jewish calendar. And yet we're stuck with the one that gets, you know, associated at least with like repentance and guilt and judgment. And of all the holidays, it also seems to depend the most on theology, right? So with some belief, this God, this male God, this judging God who goes through the book and you're either in the book, or you're out of the book. And, you know, at least there's the good tune to it now, right? The Leonard Cohen song, you know, who by fire and who by, who by stoning and whatever, but it's still pretty problematic theology, at least, at least to me. And this is like front, that's, this is what we, what we're like stuck with as the most widely observed holiday. That's always struck me as a bit of an irony. And so there's that irony that I carry with me every year when we come to this time of year. And the second irony is that what I often have want to do the most work around letting go of is the kind of self-judgment that Yom Kippur itself often brings up. In other words, Yom Kippur is like, well, review and think and letting go and come back to who you are. And like one of the first things I'd like to let go of is all of the self-judgment that comes up around Yom Kippur. <laughs> And for me, that had also a very specific part in my history. Um, so I, I'm gay and I was in the closet for 10 years of my adult life until my late 20s. And Yom Kippur during those years was exactly about one sin above all else. That's what it was every single year. And beating myself over the head with internalized homophobia year after year after year. And it was only after I came out that Yom Kippur started to actually be about things that at least mattered more, you know, being kind, for example, and being careful with speech and with our actions. But for those first 10 years of my adult life, uh, it was just replicating this kind of, these kind of awful messages that I'd taken in from, from my various cultures of which I was a part. That's just my example. I've, you know, I've talked, had, I've had this kind of conversation, this kind of session with many, many people, hundreds of people over the years. We all have our different histories. And yet there's often a similar kind of set of themes that Yom Kippur and the way that it's kind of given over to us um, can be part of the problem more than part of the solution. But I still think, and that, and, and I want to honor that. That's like a big part of this evening <laughs> is to really kind of hold that and people, you know, we can discuss it, disagree, but especially in small groups, but definitely welcome that misgiving in for me, because it's a personal misgiving that I still have. I want to suggest that there's a way to both survive this holiday, but also thrive through it. 
Um, and there are these three parts that I want to explore together uh, with a sort of dharmic lens and see and just kind of explore these three aspects. Uh, they're in the course packet if you haven't picked it up. In case you haven't noticed, I, I, there's a lot of familiar phrase, faces out there uh, of J fans, which, which is delightful to see. Uh, the J fans know I always do huge course packets that are completely unreasonable. And there's no possible way that in a single session, we can go through what, what did it top out 12 pages, 15 pages, whatever it was. So we're not going to go through the whole course packet, but if we'll, we'll touch on the, on the surface of some of them. And then if you like, you can also print out the course packet and sneak it with you to wherever you find yourself for Yom Kippur, if you, if you want to do that. Um, but, uh, well, that's indicated these three parts are indicated in the course packet the first is a kind of what i would call a historical but maybe warm historical consciousness around this particular holiday um, the second is looking at at the notion of chuva which sometimes gets translated as repentance literally means return but looking at it through a lens of what are the parts here that can be taken usefully and what are the parts that maybe we want to leave uh leave aside um and that's going to be different for each of us, but we'll do some of that exploration in the small groups. Um, and finally, actually looking at some of the other practices of the day, which might be more, might be better doorways in for having a meaningful experience in this communal ritual or for part of this community. So that's kind of where I'd love to go with it. Um, I want to just also say that in case I use um, first person pronouns like we uh, to refer to Jews, uh, I apologize in advance. Uh, we're a diverse group here, and I don't mean to exclude. I apologize if I'm, it's good for Yom Kippur. I'm already apologizing. I apologize. Uh, I don't mean to be uh, excluding anyone with my language. I'll try to be careful. Um, once in a while, I'll probably slip up and say we to refer to the group of people who celebrate this holiday. But since you're here in this session, you're now part of that we. Uh, but anyway, just on acknowledging that. So if we can take a look in the course packet, course packet, it's one session, Jay, it's not a, <laughs> um, and so we're look at, uh, looking at section one, the diving into the rec mind. I'm going to quickly change the view so I can see as many people as have their um, cameras on. How many people have heard of Adrian Rich's poem, Diving into the Wreck, which is excerpted here? So a good portion. It looks like half or so. That's great. Um, I would say this is like my my Torah. This is the center of my of my religious spiritual consciousness. This poem, uh, Adrian Rich, an amazing uh, queer Jewish poet, uh, passed away recently, um, and uh, it's for me a way of of dramatizing poetically dramatizing what scholars call the search for a usable past. So in religious in the religious studies world, the notion is that. When one is inside of a religious tradition, but not a traditionalist, we're engaged in the search for a usable past, which means we understand that we're not recreating some mythic path past that once existed, that it was like this, this sort of fundamentalist idea, and we can just turn back the clock or something like that. And it's understanding too, that there are parts of the past that we don't want to go back to that. And um, there's a Jewish version of this book called the Jewish book, Jewish search for a usable past. But the idea is that we're looking for a past that's the parts of the past that are usable um, and doing so honestly. So not saying this is what the tradition says, but these are the parts of the tradition that that might be of use. And that for me, just that consciousness, that kind of shifted consciousness, I think can be really helpful for Yom Kippur. For folks involved in American Buddhism, this might be very familiar. 
right? I remember the first time when I was just starting out with that like enthusiasm of, you know, the first meditation retreat, um, I had all these ideas based on what the teachers were conveying about what Buddhism was. I scare quoted what Buddhism was. And then I opened up the, you know, the text of the suttas and it was very different <laughs> from what I had experienced at like my first IMS retreat, right? And that wasn't because the teachers were being dishonest. It was because they were taking the pieces out. First, they were in a tradition, a reformist tradition started by Burmese and Thai reformers. I wrote a whole book about that, but that's not the subject of tonight. And second, because they were looking for the pieces that could be useful. And so some of the parts of the Buddhist scriptures and texts, uh, which are more sciency, let's say, or which talk about deities and other realms and so forth, it's not that those are rejected, but they might not be selected. Um, they might not be the ones that, and, and so I almost want to take the same kind of warm hearted approach to my Jewish tradition as some of my, some of my slash our teachers have taken to the multiple Buddhist traditions. Of course, later I found out that not only is there, there are multiple Buddhisms and there are so many different iterations of what Buddhism is and what do we mean when we say it. And that too has helped me actually one time, this is a funny little joke. Uh, there was one teacher who I struggled with, who I won't name, wonderful teacher, but I struggled with their presentation of the Dharma. And um, I said so to a friend of mine, a Dharma friend, and she said, oh, don't worry, Jay, they're just Orthodox. And as soon as I said that, because I had had experience with Orthodox Judaism, I totally got it. And I didn't struggle with that teacher at all. I was like, okay, they're presenting a particular Orthodox version of Theravada Buddhism. Oh, now I get it. Now I can relate to it in a way that I don't. I didn't feel like I don't feel like I have to agree or 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 be at stake in every presentation. So I just want to read a tiny bit of this poem, um, of Adrian Rich's poem. It's uh, framed as though she's uh, a scuba diver going into a shipwreck, and I will skip the first page. This is why I do long course packets. Um, and we'll just start on the page of top of page two. So this is her. She's already uh, she's dived down into uh, into the water and adrian rich writes and now it's easy it is easy to forget what i came for among so many who have always lived here swaying their crenellated fans between the reefs and besides you breathe differently down here i came to explore the wreck the words are purposes the words are maps i came to see the damage that was done and the treasures that prevail if I were highlighting, that's the line I would highlight. I stroke the beam of my lamp slowly along the flank of something more permanent than fish or weed. The thing I came for, the wreck, and not the story of the wreck, the thing itself and not the myth, the drowned face always staring toward the sun, the evidence of damage worn by salt and sway into this threadbare beauty, the ribs of the disaster curving their assertion among the tentative haunters. And let's see, I'm going to scroll down a little bit to the, to the last stanza on page three. We are, and this is not a typo, by the way, as she's playing with the way this sentence or verse is constructed. We are, I am, you are, by cowardice or courage, the one who find our way back to this scene, carrying a knife, a camera, a book of myths in which our names do not appear. So Adrian Rich has spoken that this she's she one of the many things she had in mind in writing this poem was a kind of a feminist Judaism, 
um, seeing that there is the there's I'll go back to that line that I interrupted myself for the, um, the to, I came to see the damage that was done and the treasures that prevail. And it's the holding of both of those that I think is so potentially transformative about this poem. I mean, it's a simple point in a certain way, but I think having the consciousness, it might be simple, but it's not easy to be able to see both the both the damage that was done and the treasures that prevail. And knowing that the the book of myths that we inherit in this in this observance in Yom Kippur and more generally might not have my name or people like me or my even my ancestors in it. Or if my ancestors are in it, they might have been the people who were involved in, you know, the cross-dressing priests of ancient Canaan who were banned by Deuteronomy. Or they might have been the women who were honoring multiple deities and who were banned by other by uh, by other books of the Torah and then banned by the the kings, as described uh, later on in the Bible. My ancestors may not appear in the text at all, but there's still like treasure in in the wreck. And it's that consciousness that I feel is sort of particularly present around Yom Kippur. So I just had a, an article come out. In fact, I could have found the link, but it just came out uh, yesterday in, on the My Jewish Learning website, pointing out that most, the a majority of the liturgy of Yom Kippur is actually pretty recent in Jewish history. So the Unatanatokef prayer, the one that Leonard Cohen adapted, who by fire, who shall die, who shall live, right? So to say that it's 12th century may not sound very recent, but in Jewish history, that's like the day before yesterday, right? That's the medieval period. And the text, the origination myth of that hymn talks about it being born from pain, not just pain, but trauma and torture, right? It's a, it's a, it's a hymn and a theology that comes from a people who are being persecuted and murdered, right, in the Crusades. Right? And it's in a very specific historical moment where that unspeakable pain finds its way into poetry and into theology. And so as I approach it, so I may find, maybe I find resonance with that, right? Sort of in a post-Holocaust Judaism, or maybe I don't, but I definitely find a sense of appreciation for it more as a historical artifact of a people and a writer in profound pain than in something that may, that may or may not be part of the usable past, that may be part of the treasure or may be part of the wreck. So that's that particular one. Um, the notion that we sit quietly in a synagogue and there's a cantor maybe, or somebody is, is, is chanting in Hebrew and we're just kind of sitting there. That's a product of the 19th century, late, late 18th and early 19th century German reform movement, which wanted synagogue services to seem more like Protestant services of the time, right? And so Jewish service, Jewish prayer life at that time was very kind of raucous and messy, especially on Yom Kippur. People are shouting and they're chanting and so forth. And this is all men doing the shouting and the chanting. So the men are shouting and the chanting. And the reformers thought that this was outrageous uh, and undignified. And what we should do is sit like proper proper German Protestants and a, and a preacher would say edifying things in the sermon. And the cantor would have a beautiful voice and would sing on our behalf. And there might be a might be a choir and there might be an organ. And even in contexts that don't have the choir and the organ and all of those trappings, still often have that ritual choreography. And then if you contrast it, this is in the course packet with some of what what the actual the biblical observance was like. The biblical observance was bizarre, right? 
in a good way, right? It was really strange, right? A blood sacrifice that we still recount in the traditional liturgy, and it has to be just such a blood sacrifice and this priestly rite of expiation. And then after that's done, sort of a huge celebration, right? And matchmaking took place. It's when marriages were arranged on the afternoon of Yom Kippur after, after this cleansing, this catharsis that took place. And this is in the, the quote for myself on page three, this kind of this cultic magic of biblical Yom Kippur. Kapara doesn't mean kapara, the, the root of Yom Kippur. It doesn't mean just atonement. It means catharsis, cleansing, expiation. It's almost like I suggest like a desperate plea for order in a disordered world. And I remember writing that during, again, the sort of more intense part of the pandemic and feeling actually a surprising resonance like a desperate plea for order in a time of, of suffering and disorder. So there again, I'm not saying the biblical one is great and the medieval one is terrible and the modern one is also, right? Just noticing that there are multiple Yom Kippers, right? And that what's what's presented to us as trans-historical, and this is how this ritual has always happened, is anything but, right? That's definitely not what it is. It's certainly a pro it's a product of multiple historical currents kind of layered on top of it. Um, and I love that, right? I love kind of that um, alienation is sort of for me like a gateway to fascination, like that to really inhabit the world, let's say, go back to the Unatanatoka of Psalm, the who shall live and who shall die uh, theology. So when it's not about me, when it's not like, do I believe this or not, but an imaginative narrative exercise of imagining the pain that gave birth to that poem and the myth of the, the rabbi who was tortured and dismembered and so forth is probably not true. That particular myth and that particular rabbi probably didn't write the Unitana but that doesn't matter, right? This was a myth. This is a myth telling us the ground from which this plant grew right? The soil was the soil of intense, profound suffering. And sometimes it can resonate for us today. We might not have that belief in a theology of a God that does these things, but the notion that in a, in a strange way that the innocent do suffer and that death is, is not under our, not just, not just under our control, but under our ability to know, to predict. That can resonate actually kind of a great deal. So what I sometimes like to do when I, if I'm part of a communal uh, service practice is to imaginatively wonder what it might be like to be part of the community that affirmed this, this bit of ritual or this bit of text. And just imagining that, imagining what it would be like to be in a sort of pre-industrial society where there was a blood sacrifice and a goat pushed over a cliff taking all of our sins uh, with it. That feels really strange to me in a way that feels very vital and alive. Um, and so in a certain way, this, this feels maybe this part one feels like introduction or framing. But for me, some years, this is actually the whole piece of it, um, is being able to kind of have this complex seeing, which for me, my meditation practice has helps me to do. So my own reactions are part of that too. So... I and probably most, I think certainly numerically, most of us on this call would be kind of forcibly excluded from some of those communities, either because of our sex or gender or because of our backgrounds or some other reason. And so it's not to sort of celebrate those pasts, 
but a way to kind of hold and see what's happening in each moment um, in its multiplicity. So there's the there's the text, and there's someone performing, and there's my response, and there's an imaginative exercise, and there's the dance that Adrian Rich describes, I think, in diving into the wreck. That that can be part. That is part of the practice. I think of the holiday. Okay. That was a lot of Jay talking, but it's a large group, so I apologize for that. Uh, I want to move on to maybe the heart of the session, uh, which is what I've called Buchu, which I think is not going to catch on. You know, Buju is that acronym for Buddhist Jewish. So Buchu is Buddhist Chuva. I don't think it's going to last, but I thought it would be, it was definitely a good dad joke and maybe a rabbi joke. So I, I included it in. So for me, I, what I want, what we're going to do in a moment in about two minutes is break out into small groups to look at a bunch of different charts. And why do we, why do I think that's worthwhile? So one of the things that charts really do, Buddhists love charts, Jews sometimes love charts, right? The eight, this, the 12, that the 10, whatever. And right. It's, it's funny if you kind of think about the, um, you know, the, one of the traditional liturgies, which we're going to look at in a moment, is like this list of sins, right? It's like all the, there's two lists of sins. I always wondered that when I was a child, actually growing up, like, well, which sin, which sin list is it? <laughs> there's like the alphabetical one and the other alphabetical one. And beyond the language of sin and, and guilt, there's sort of, there is a kind of magic that comes from naming, naming and releasing. And it's kind of a, the lists and the charts can help us to do that. So if I were to sit and just ruminate or reflect on my own stuff, which I do every day, <laughs> then right there's there's that it can be kind of a circular process in a certain way. Like here's my core material, here's this thing, here's this thing, and having an external list or a chart actually is almost like having another voice present bringing things to mind which might not be there. A rabbi friend of mine said on Tashlech, the ritual on Rosh Hashanah, where you sort of take pieces of bread and throw them into the water, symbolizing letting go of sins. She called it our ancient Jewish pagan magic, because by naming in the ritual, sort of actually bringing it to mind and then letting it go, it's, just, it's an absurd ritual, right? Of course, no one really believes that the ducks are eating all of our sins, those poor ducks, right? Um, but by naming and releasing, there is a magic that takes place that wouldn't happen if we didn't do it, right? So it's the like the moment of thinking, like, what would I let go of? Um, maybe it is self-judgment, maybe it's un maybe it's anger, maybe it's this moment of unkind speech, right? Or what would I let go of in that in that period, in that moment in the of this period of time? And what would I let go of? That brings it to mind. And the release, the physical action, kind of makes it feel like that might be possible, right? Not that it achieves a magical result, but that it might be possible. Um, and I think the charts can do that too. So the invitation is going to be to look at the different charts. And in the group, I'm going to invite you to, because we're going to have about 10 minutes in the group. Um, you can look at it. Uh, I, I think it, it'll work really well if um, someone reads it out loud. That's sort of the traditional Jewish way. Maybe not Michael Lerner's really, really long <laughs> uh, list of, of all of the communal sort of sins we've we've committed. But it's an interesting prism on that on that practice. Um, but of the shorter ones, maybe going through the lists, comparing the paramis to the midot. Um, and uh, and so forth down that list. Um, last frame before we go into the small groups. For me, the most eloquent example of this naming and the process actually does come from a dharmic source, a very 
well-known one at the bottom of page four. So this is from the Satipatthana Sutta. And I think it's quite subtle, actually. So I want to spend a moment on it before we break into the groups. So again, if you have practiced in the sort of American Theravadan scene, this may be very familiar. Um, so the Buddha is speaking to a bunch of monks and nuns. So here in monastics, when sense desire in pres is present, the monk or nun knows there is sense desire in me. Or when sense desire is not present, he or she knows there is no sense desire in me. He or she knows how the arising of the non-arisen sense desire comes to be, in other words, what causes it to come up, and knows how the abandoning of the arisen sense desire comes to be, like how it goes away, and knows how the non-arising in the future of the sense desire can come to be, in other words, for it not to arise again. What I love, and then it goes over with all of the all of the um the kind of the these these uh defilements in a certain way, right? What I love about this is that there's no the monk then beats himself up over the head for having the arise arisen sense desire, right? It the, it's this transparency of mindfulness that's I think is the key to all of these charts, right? Is it possible to notice the that which we might feel uh, we could we we would love to let go of without feeling aversion toward it or without feeling aversion toward ourselves, right? It's very cause and effect, right? Not self. It's like, okay, here's an unkind thing that I said. Here's a speech act, which was not kind speech. I noticed that it's present. What Here were the causes that led to that. And here are the ways that that might not, might be, a, might happen less in the future, right? It's not personalized. It's not personalized in a sense of I am this and I am that and I always do this and I that and and it's right. It's just a very kind of it can seem, I think, cold in a certain way, like almost mechanical, but I don't experience it that way. I experience it as as restful, allowing this kind of clear seeing to take place. And it's that itself for me is the practice. Like I don't think I ever do it the way that the Satipatthana Sutta says to do it. I don't think I ever notice something difficult about myself with this transparency of, oh, I noticed that this is present. I noticed that anger was present. Um, I noticed that um, unkind speech was, was present. And I notice in in that sort of pure and noticing uh, way. So for me, it's almost an ideal. Uh, toward which I can strive, and then I can judge myself about not achieving that ideal. <laughs> so then there's more work to do, even on the process of of reflection itself. So is it possible as we go to the next page and break out into the groups? So we'll look at two D, two E, two F, two G, and maybe two H. And these are these are several different versions of charts. And as you look through them in the small groups. What are, which which resonate with you and which don't? What's missing? What's included? What's excluded? Um, and as you do so, each time if you speak in the groups, it looks like there'll be, I guess, about five people in each one. Um, it would be lovely if you'd introduce yourself. You could just say your name and and something. Uh, but if you want just, just your name so that there's a little opportunity for getting to know some of the folks who are here. Okay. That's the instruction for the small group. I see people look like they're ready to go. So Cassie is going to randomly put us all into groups of five or six people. And we will, Cassie, let's do it for 10 instead of 12 minutes, just for time. We'll be back here uh, in 10 minutes. Okay, I'll see you all really soon.
unmute yourself and say hi. We can test. Okay, it worked. Okay, Avi, that was more than enough. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Great. So welcome back. Uh, we've enabled unmuting. I'm curious. I'd love it if somebody wants to just sort of feed back something that came up in your group that you wanted to share with the wider, the wider group. Um, hi, I'm Jan uh, from Alexandria, Virginia. Um, what came up for me uh, was how how rhythmic the um, the words can be. Um, and I on Yom Kippur, I'm always reminded, and and I mentioned this in the group of that communal prayer: when we have sinned, we have uh, that. One where the whole congregation stands up and owns up to what the community has experienced in a year. But the, I, I experienced that um, same kind of rhythmic, particularly with the Buddha, you know, uh, the, this uh, the focused on uh, right speech. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a mm -hmm. rhythm in there, which I didn't quite grasp, but I could, I could, I know with the right group, if we said that out loud, it would be a very powerful um, kind of communal experience. Yeah, I love that. And if you, you know, historically, the, the suttas, of course, were or it was an oral tradition, right, before they were written. And so the, the rhythmic format of them helped memorization. But yeah, if you hear, you know, monastics really in any tradition but certainly in the buddhist traditions actually chanting these it does have a kind of there's a rhythmic aspect to it some of my best um jewish prayer experiences were when i would just just do the rhythm and not pay attention to the words there was like right. sometimes an advantage of having it be in a language of hebrew is not our first language of having it be not in the first language so it kind of puts the um the somatic experience especially you know if you if you're sort of swaying back and forth in mm -hmm. a traditional way or some other one and and uh yeah i love that thanks thanks yeah. jen um your screen name is set as ipad but i think that's not your real name no oh. that's my real name is terry and my computer's not working very well so I'm that's using fine. Both. but um thank you can you give us a better word for sin we're all having a trouble with the word sin mm. can you give us some better translation that we can use because the even though it, it's hard opening in the Hebrew, it's a little crazy. Yeah, it's not a great word. Of course, sin, you know, too, is not a any English language word, right? That's going to be filled with kind of uh, the context from which it comes, right? In this case, a Christian context. You know, chet can sometimes, it comes from a root of like, or avera, the word for transgression, can sort of, it comes from a, a, a root meaning like we missed the mark. So that's one way to make it, not theologized, but yeah, we missed the mark. There's also a little bit of, I think, implied possibility of self-forgiveness in that uh, in that rendition of it, right? Like uh, somebody just put in the in the chat like an oops, but like we were had if had we had the conditions been different, this is what I love about that Satipatthana Sutta excerpt. Like I remember one time actually on a retreat, I was on a retreat, a six week retreat at IMS and Guy Armstrong was one of the teachers. And I went into the interview with like a long interview about how justified I was for being angry about something. And a uh, guy warmly interrupted me and, and just said, the conditions for anger were present. 
And that was really helpful in that. Interrupting is not always a great teacher technique, but in that moment, it was really helpful for me to just like, okay, the conditions were present. And likewise here with, with missing the mark, um, the conditions weren't present to hit the mark. Like I wasn't my best self in that moment. Um, so that's one, one way of putting it in. Um, but I also feel it's funny watching uh, American Buddhists struggle with how to translate kusala and akusala, which is like wholesome or unwholesome. Um, sometimes it's like there, there are some more fierce ways to translate those terms, you know, like pure and impure and like, you know, it's sort of, and, uh, but there again, I mean, if we have a sort of neutral, it's like, this is the, this is the way that leads to more compassion. And this is the way that leads to more suffering. And one is, you know, or skillful and unskillful is sometimes used a lot, right? So, you know, a, a chet, a sin is, is we could, we could translate as this was really unskillful. This led to suffering uh, or alienation or, uh, or whatever. And um, yeah, those are a few suggestions. Um, Stephen, yeah. Uh, Stephen, you want to go? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Yeah, uh, we didn't we didn't get very far on the uh, the readings. The time you know whizzed by, and we, we got through kind of one. But uh, just the, the, more the intro at the beginning, just the, I, and I'm also expressing more of my own stuff than the probably the group stuff um, on their behalf, probably for my own my own garbage I bring up, of course. But uh, just the struggle of bring the struggle of being Jewish and being Buddhist, and uh, and it's been a it's been a, a tough struggle. It still is, and, and it really becomes highlighted at the Yom Kippur. You know, I, I fast. I want to get into the whole thing. We all struggle with fasting, not fasting, and then observing, not observing, working, not working, and it just feels so. I feel so disconnected from my Judaism, so incredibly disconnected that uh, it's not even much of an issue anymore. It's so much more connected to Buddhism, although I'm not a Buddhist, whatever that really means anyway. And just to say how much I appreciate this actual gathering right here of people that are. Also dealing with, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's struggling a little bit with identities and lack of identities and acceptance and all that stuff. And uh, just appreciate it, just to say that. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you, I Jay, for being doing this. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, it's funny. I, I think I put in the description of this session that in a certain way, Yom Kippur is a very Buddhisty or Dharmic holiday, right? Because it involves reflection and introspection on our ethical actions and how we might do better. Um, and yet... <laughs> it also is freighted right with this whole other uh this whole other layer of stuff right with guilt and family if we if we grew up in a in a jewish family or and and um should i or shouldn't i do i need to do i have to um i feel bad if i'm doing these things I, you know there's another thing which dharma teachers always say all the time is it's all grist for the mill um, which is to say whatever's coming up can be the sort the, the the material for your practice, for your reflection, for your mindfulness practice, whichever it is. And I think that's true here. You know, all of the stuff you named is not extrinsic to the value of having like the, the possibility of having a, a valuable Yom Kippur experience, right? So guilt arises, alienation, anger arises, rejection arises, the feeling bad about rejection. Am I rejecting my family by rejecting this part of the heritage? Am I all of all of that stuff is allowed, <laughs> you know, and it's, you know this, of course, but just to like, that's all fertile ground, make that the Yom Kippur, right? So back to Adrian Rich, maybe it's all wreck, right? And there's not the treasure, right? She doesn't sort of say like the treasure is good, the wreck is bad. She's there to explore the wreck. And that can be profoundly insight generating, 
uh, and solace generating as well. And even sanctity generating, right. To like hold that pain that might be there. Um, I think is actually a really, for me can be a lovely way in. Um, and that for, that's why I spent so long on that first section about the, the ways of seeing, um, cause it's not just seeing it's ways of feeling and holding and allowing, uh, last comment from Carol, and then we'll, uh, we'll move on a little bit. So Carol. I just wanted to say up front before the end of the session that I appreciate the opportunity to have a group where I felt free to speak about some of the things I feel about this holiday, which this year is causing me a great deal of difficulty. And um, so I want to say thank you. Thanks. Um, um... I'm sorry to hear of the, the difficulty. And as people are saying in the chat, that's, this is part, this is a widespread, you're not alone. <laughs> and we're here to support you in the way that we can. Um, I want to look at real briefly at a couple of those charts and then move to part three of our time together. Um, I find it interesting to kind of just first with the, if you look at uh, the, the Buddha talking about um, uh, wrong speech in 2D, if you're familiar with the traditional alchet, the liturgy of the like the long, there's the one with the, the words that's alphabetical and the one with the sentences that's alphabetical. The one with the sentences that's alphabetical, something like two thirds of them are about speech acts, like things that we say, which I think is interesting. And for me, it can be really helpful to have this map um, that comes from the Dharma to fulfill maybe, I'm just speculating, maybe the goal of that alchet prayer, but without some of the freighted uh, problematic parts of that. So, cause if you look for it, there's really quite a lot, it could be a nice reflection, you know, wherever you are in Yom Kippur to kind of go through, um, this list of, uh, what are the things to refrain from? Um, and what are the things to, to engage in, in the, in the realm of speech? So I just wanted to kind of suggest that as a, as a piece, these other maps could be really interesting. I'm not sure if people are familiar with the Musar tradition. It's, it's their M-U-S-S-A-R. Um, it's a, it came in the 19th century and it's a strangely modern kind of psychological process of going through. It's basically virtue ethics, but in a, in a Jewish container. And since uh, the, the Buddha, the Buddha, Buddhism, Theravadan Buddhism also emphasizes the paramis, these virtues. Um, it's interesting to kind of look at the list of the ones from Musar. And there again, Yom Kippur doesn't have to be, we don't have to focus on the only the negative, right? These can be like really nice aspirations um, for where, what might be one of this list that it might be interesting to like to focus on uh, in the next month, maybe not the next year or next, next period of time. Um, Similarly, there's like the aspirational element in the Michael Lerner thing, which we're not going to go into detail. And so a few years ago, I, I was teaching this material at Cornell University, mostly to undergrads. And I came up with this sort of simple body, mind, heart, spirit, internal, external uh, chart uh, as a way, again, of having a sort of a prism, half prism, half mirror um, for looking at our looking at our actions. But if all else fails, I'm curious to do another po poem poll. You could just raise your hand if you know Mary Oliver's poem, Wild Geese. Every Buddhist knows this. <laughs> some a lot of people know this one. Some don't. So it's my it's my duty to make sure that the 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 10% of folks who don't know this poem are aware of it. It's like the other Torah for me of um of uh of Yom Kippur, right? You don't you don't have to be good. 
you don't have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. Nice little reference, I think, to the Bible, right? You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Sometimes that the poem is quoted and it ends there, which is fine. <laughs> That's a I wish I could write that that verse. Uh, but it it continues, right? That it's not it's not just like letting the soft animal of your body love words. Tell me about your despair, right? Tell me your sadness, and I'll tell you mine, right? That that's it's honoring that it's honoring the pain that's there, and also right some little bit of that both and uh, that I saw I think in the Adrian Rich. Meanwhile, the world goes on, right? The wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again, right? That there's both. The it's it's honoring again sort of both of those parts, both the part where here's my pain and here's yours, and here's the love and the community that we can share by sharing that, and also the the world is going on. I just find that oscillation to be really a good curative. So if at any point if you're you are in a Yom Kippur that's traditional, just remember one of those verses from from uh, from Wild Geese, and I think it'll help. I want to look for about five minutes at part three. Um, and make a little bit of a pitch uh, for some non-repentance-oriented Yom Kippur practices that I find can be really healing. Uh, so there's the reflection questions. We won't, won't look at that now. Fasting can be, if it's taken, if we take out the kind of penitential layering of it, um, fasting can be a really interesting practice around meditation. And if all else fails, what's nice about fasting is that it's a body practice that doesn't have to have any particular interpretation. Just entering the altered mind state of uh, of fasting in some form or another. Obviously, I'll just repeat: should be it's part of traditional Judaism that if there's any medical reason not to fast, of course, please do not fast. But um, that article which I ref, which I'm uh, referencing here, and you can just Google the title because it's easy to find. Um, uh, makes a pitch, a kind of body-based practice pitch for fasting as a spiritual practice. Um, remember the middle way and the Dharma was eating like a, a grain or two of rice a day. So in some cases, so even that there's, there's something profound. I find that my sort of regular meditation practice really opens up uh, when there's this short-term fasting thing. And a little bit like when Stephen and I were talking again, it can also be a fertile ground for seeing stuff to let go of. So there might be fasting, for example, taking place and the body's having something. And then you might notice really toxic stories that you've in, in, imbibed that I'll speak first, firsthand that I've imbibed about my body or about how with this and that and seeing that and then maybe breaking, breaking the fast as a result uh, and, and having permission to do that and seeing that this is a practice that comes again in a, in a kind of coded cultural context. But if all else fails, like make it the fast, your fast. It doesn't have to be somebody else's fast. It could even be Isaiah's fast, right? This is the, the I think Judaism's high watermark. We'll skip over 3C, we'll come back to it. But 3D, which is on page 10 of the course packet, right? I think Isaiah 58 might be the best par the best chapter in the Bible, right? Where Isaiah castigates people for just fasting and self-mortifying and this and that. And meanwhile, they're not working on building a more just society, right? That is this is the fast that I desire. This is God speaking. You know, I don't want I don't want you fasting and bowing your head like a reed and covering yourself in sackcloth and ashes. The fast I desire is to break the bonds of evil, right? And remove the heavy yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke of oppression. I can get on board with that fast, right? And it's interesting to think about it for what that might actually write. It's to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless home. 
if you're in a place in your life where entering into a traditional Jewish context is out of the question, dedicate Yom Kippur to volunteering in a way that directly alleviates suffering. And Isaiah, good Jewish authority, defines that as fasting, right? He doesn't say do this instead of fasting. He says this is the fast, is to actually is to actually devote this day to something that actually matters, right? Building a more just society in a structural way too, right? Not just like there's nothing wrong with soup kitchens. That could be a great thing to do on uh, on Wednesday, but it's structural, right? To break the bonds of evil is is to build systemic justice, uh, not just um, you know transitory helping, but to really transform society. Um, the last practice I want to kind of recommend before closing is um, this list I made up on on 3C, and this is just for me. Um, this was really born out of an incredibly frustrating year of Yom Kippur, and if all else fails, the, I feel like these can these things can really help, like listening meditation and just hearing the sounds, right? Noticing also inclining the mind to impermanence, how sounds and sights pop in and out of our consciousness, right? I love the sort of the the dependent origination piece that seeing the group of people who have come together and imagining all of the causes and conditions. Of course, we have no idea what the causes and conditions are of each person being in a room together for some sort of you know moment or practice. But just seeing each of these moments as a confluence of causes and conditions. Again, it's kind of occupying Yom Kippur in a certain kind of uh, contemplative sense. Um, and really feeling, you know, I felt this a lot in the last uh, last year in particular. There's so much, there are so many opportunities for compassion, being in a space with a group of other people, such as Yom Kippur, and I've felt for me that that's been incredibly liberating. Um, so those are a few non-chuva-related uh, practices that I think are honoring some of the spirit of Yom Kippur without necessarily going down some of the rabbit holes of the way it's traditionally observed. Um, we're going to close close with a few minutes of Q&A and also this poem, which is what I want to do absolutely last, the, the one on page 11. Um, so before we do that, we'll do like the mini version, right? Oh, we forgot to do the mini, mini version of the Donna talk, but um, Cassie's just going to mention about how to support me uh, around this teaching, and then we'll do Q&A, and then uh, we'll close with that poem that I want to read. And it's not going to be me reading it either. Cassie? Yes. Hey. Um, yeah, I will do the mini version to leave as much time as we can for the Q&A. But I um, just wanted to jump in and um, share a little bit about the practice of Donna, which I know probably most of you are familiar with and have heard some version of this talk before. Um, but just uh, for this event, um, just to share about the tradition of Donna, or that's the Pali word for generosity. Um, coming from the time of the Buddha where um, he wanted the teachings to always be freely offered so that they'd be accessible for everyone. Um, and how that's still the, the tradition that, are, um, that we practice in um, at BCBS today. Um, so just to say thank you already for the generosity that you've shared just by showing up and co-creating this space together so that um, we could be practicing together tonight. Um, to share a little bit about how BCBS works, um, the teachers that put on events and courses and retreats, anyone, any teacher that comes to BCBS is offering their time freely. Um, I know this was a, a freely offered course um, with no registration fees, but other courses, um, you know, we have registration fees, but that fee does not go to the teacher. 
um, their time is freely offered um, in the spirit of generosity to create these wonderful events. Um, so at the end of a program, we just say a few words uh, about this practice in, um, in hopes that uh, the people who come to the to the programs are and, and benefit from them are able to support the teachers who have offered their time so that we can keep doing this. Um, so I'll just share on a personal note, like I, I've been at BCBS for five years and it's just really incredible to see all the wonderful teachers who come and who, um, who are so generous with, with their time, including Jay. And uh, it's also so incredible to see just the really thousands, thousands of people who um, who are benefiting from our programs and who together, you know, all of us together are making this possible um, because it wouldn't be possible without the, um, the teachers offering their time and the, the yogis and students and participants supporting them. Um, so just in terms of logistics, um, I'm going to put a link in the chat right now. Uh, and you'll also receive this in an email tomorrow um, in case, you know, it, you, know you miss it. Um, and um, you'll see there's kind of one field to offer. Donna says Jay's name and BCBS. Um, BCBS and Jay are sharing the Donna for this event. So there's one, one pool to, um, to offer. That pool is tax deductible. Um, and so you'll receive a note from us with your records. And um, Jay, do you want to add anything else? No, that was great. Thank you. Uh, yep. There's yeah. This is not a to answer Gail's question in the chat. Um, this is not a voluntary registration fee. Uh, you're welcome to not donate money uh, if that's if that's where you're at for whatever reason. And uh, this is truly, uh, I would appreciate it, and uh, BCBS would appreciate it, obviously. But uh, it's not. It's there's there should have been no registration fee when you signed up. Uh, yeah. I'll just know that the Donna link, there was an opportunity to have this, the same link that if you gave when you registered, oh, I see. Thanks. Oh, I maybe misunderstood the question, but Great. there was no registration fee. It was an option then as well. So let's, um, uh, allow folks to unmute. What I could ask is please use the raise your hand feature, and then you'll pop to the top of my, uh, my screen and I can, uh, so this is an opportunity for Ooh. questions or more feedback from the groups or for yourself. Also, my friend Davi is here and uh, Davi, I sent you a DM. So take a look in the chat and let me know what you think. Um, all right. Uh, Chaya, is that Chaya? Is that how to pronounce it right? Okay, great. Yep, it's Chaya. Yep. Um, I'm in Minneapolis and I wanted to first just share the first time that I really, I'm, I'm curious as to why this is great that we have Jewish Buddhists talking together. Um, the very back in 2019, just before the pandemic, I was on a month-long retreat out at Spirit Rock, talking to Jewish Buddhists who happened to be Jewish versus Jewish Buddhists, and nobody wanted to talk to me. And I just wanted to thank you for having that available because, you know, I think that for me, I pushed off for so long that it feels really, I'm part of a Jewish renewal group now, and we are very much involved. It isn't, you know, pushing things away, but is there other places that you know that, you know, Jewish Buddhists gather? <laughs> Thanks for asking. Um, feel free, other folks can feel free to put uh, answers to that uh, question in the chat if you want, not just me. Um, yeah, there, I mean, I, I'm uh, I'm 
now outside of New York City, but uh, there's a now with uh, things streaming all the time. Uh, there's a wonderful synagogue in New York called Romamu, which you probably have heard of if you do Jewish renewal. Um, Roger Kamenetz and I are doing our we're taking we're taking our show on the road all the time now. We both have new books <laughs> out, so we're uh, we're taking the Buju show around. And uh, no plans on Minneapolis just yet, but if so, uh, you'll hear about it. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a it's um it's a large sangha, obviously, and there are a lot of different flavors of different relations. So there's a lot of folks who are Jewish by birth, but are just nourished by the Dharma, and and that's where they're at. There are a lot of folks who are bringing some Buddha Dharma stuff into Jewish practice. There are many who are doing blending and, um, but right. It can be, it, it can feel as though it's not as large a group as, as large a Sangha as it is. Um, so thank you for. Uh, and I just want to offer to anybody who wants to join us. There's a group down in Florida called TAO Temple of Or. It's a wonderful, in fact, the rabbi was, um, his parents were rabbis, sent him to a ashram as a kid. So he's, you know, he's just so cool. So if you guys were have great services that really speak to the heart. So check out TAO, Temple of and thank you. Thank you, uh, Alexandra. <laughs> Shana Tova. Shana Tova. Hi, um, so thank you so much for today. Um, I have struggled with incorporating Judaism into my life as it feels the most alive for me. I'm a grandchild of Holocaust survivors. I'm also a meditation teacher. I have heard you on the 10% Happier app and I, I feel connected to that part of Judaism, but I still struggle to find where it fits in in my life. Um, and I just was wondering if you have any suggestions about going about that. I mean, like this was something that was new for me to do this. Mm. Thanks. So um, for me, what I most I should say this is like an annoying thing writers say. I've written what I'm about to say uh, a few times. There's a chapter in Evolving Dharma about this. So there's more more than I can say now is in there. One of the things I love about the my the Jewish part of my hybrid or maybe tribrid uh, I, religious spiritual practice identity uh, is the sort of cycle of the holidays and the life cycle stuff. And I find these occasions to be really fertile ones to construct my own ritual, construct my own practice. I now have a four-year-old daughter. I love lighting Shabbat candles with her. Um, I don't have a theology that there's a, a deity who rested on something called the seventh day. I don't care about that, but I love sort of from a, it's almost a reconstructionist Jewish point of view that this civilization has evolved this, um, these folk ways. And uh, I love that rhythm and having that having that rhythm of the of the year. Um, this not, I mean, the Dharma communities also have these, right? Especially Asian Buddhist communities, meaning communities in 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 Asia, um, where there's many holidays throughout the year that can be so. So it's not like Judaism has some monopoly on uh, on the cycle of the year or anything like that. But I do because I was born into this tradition or into this people. Um, there is that connection that's there for me. Uh, I know a lot of Jews, by, my partner's Jew by choice. Many people have that, of you know, that sense of connectedness. Um, and that's just kind of there. And I've 
in a certain way relinquished. There was a while in my professional work for about 10 years where I was really sort of fighting to create what I thought would be a better American Judaism than the one that we've got. Uh, and I've sort of, I haven't done that work in a while. And my, my personal Jewish life has gotten a lot better after that relinquishment. Um, so I want to actually continue feeling into the profound brokennesses of Jewishness as it exists, precisely because I find that enables me to own the liberating parts more. Um, so that's the, those are the parts that I love is, is like the calendar, the folkways, the connections, anything, the more pagan, the better. It's what I like. Sukkot is my favorite Jewish holiday. I love, I love the fact that we take magical plants and wave them in, in the six directions and then say that we're not pagan that I just love that. Um, and that for me is, is, um, is a beautiful celebration of, of, of the cycles of the earth. Um, so it's, it's, I could go on and on, but those are some of the ones that, that connect in for me. Um, I just realized I'm like the worst self-marketer ever. I'm going to put a link in the chat. I am also leading a, a, a five-day Jewish slash Buddhist Jewish meditation retreat in Connecticut the week of Christmas, co-leading with some wonderful co-teachers. <laughs> and uh, it's great that it just occurred to me to maybe mention that. So I'll, I'll put a link into the chat in just a minute. Thank you. All right, Hal. Yes, thank you. Yeah. I was just about to comment specifically about your brief mention of the wonderful holiday Sukkot. And that's the one thing that I look forward to about this time of year. Oh, well, we go through and we do Rosh Hashanah, which is pretty good, and then Yom Kippur, we got issues and problems. But then we have Sukkot, which is the original Burning Man, which I often tell people, so you think about it, it's the original Burning Man has been going on. And you can see why, in fact, it used to be the most important, biggest holiday celebrated. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, hi, Paula. It's been years. <laughs> it's great to see you. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, I just want to tell everybody about your retreats at Isabella Friedman, which are really spectacular. Um, so if anyone's interested in doing that, I, I think you should definitely go. At least someone here is good at marketing me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate that. It's time for maybe one more, and then we'll close with our closing poem, prayer, invocation. Or we'll go right to that. Great. Let's go right to that. So um, let's see. So my friend Davi, who is here on the in the Zoom, who was... Once in once in future actor, I, I think if it's a fair way to put it. Um, so I love, love, love uh, this poem uh, by Joanne Sunshower. And I've talked already about sort of the sort of the more the more pagan, the better for me in my Jewish practice. Um, you know, it's it's tricky. I mean, Judaism really is was an earth based uh, tradition. And there are a lot of really good folks reclaiming slash recreating or creating that more uh, now. Uh, I think of my friend Jill Hammer and the Kohenet Hebrew Priestess Program, uh, which is one of those examples. There are many others, Lynn Gottlieb, many other teachers are active doing this work. Um, and I think at the root of what I've tried to offer tonight is feeling into, for me, a profound truth that these holidays, including Yom Kippur, are answering deep questions. 
sort of profound questions, not necessarily intellectual questions, but as much as existential ones, the fragility of our lives and the turning of the seasons and the strange reality of humanity that part of our selves, our mind, body, heart selves is able to envision a world that's compassionate and a way of being in the world that reflects that. But other parts of ourselves, that's just not how we're wired. We're not angels, right? We're not wired to, to do that, um, to, to actualize that. And we're aware of that gap and that shortcom- shortcoming. If, in a certain way, I, I find, always find Yom Kippur as like the most Christian of Jewish holidays because it is so focused on that gap between our ideal of what, what the human <laughs> being might be, what we might be able to be, and the reality of, of how we are. And even though I'm not a big fan of some of the answers to those questions, I do love returning to the questions. And so this poem that Davi's about to do uh, uses almost a very kind of traditional religious language, language of, of salvation. And salvation for me is that consciousness of that gap and the, 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 and, and the yearning for salvation, the yearning for for. No, for being saved when we know we can't save ourselves. Um, and yet, as you'll see, the, the what's offered uh, in this poem slash prayer uh, is, not, is not sort of the traditional answer. It also, just last thing before I'll be quiet, uh, the, the end of the kind of this season of holidays is all about, it's like there's this holiday Hoshana Rabbah, which not many people celebrate. And there's the going around in circles of the last holiday, the Shemini Yatzarad and Sukhat Torah. These are after Sukkot, the, the last of the cycle of holidays. And there's this notion of, that we began in the sit of knowing that we can't hold, we can't save ourselves in a certain way. And that isn't a theological proposition. That's an emotional cry. And yet there is something that holds us. And I love the way that Joanne Sunshower frames that. That's my little, so that's my intro to this offering. I am going to close my eyes and listen to this poem and see what comes up for me. You're welcome to do the same. Take it away, Davi. Thank you. Thank you. Prayer for the great turning. May the turning of the earth save us. May the turning of the seasons and the turning of the leaves save us. May we be saved by the worms, the beetles, and the microbes turning the soil. May we be saved by the turning of vegetation into compost and the turning of compost into rich soil. May the turning of seeds into plants and the turning of flowers into fruits save us. May the grasses and weeds, the vines and mosses all conspire to save us. May we be saved by the turning of sprouts into saplings, of saplings into trees, and the trees into forests. May the scurrying, foraging, pouncing, and lumbering of the animals save us. May the breath of heaven in the breezes and the stormy winds save us. May the dance of the butterflies and the musical flight and return of the birds save us. May we be saved by vapors turning into clouds and by the turning of the ever-changing clouds into rain. May the waters flowing from springs into the lakes save us. 
May the streams flowing into rivers, the rivers into seas, and the great heaving of the oceans save us. May we be saved by the patient turning of the rocks, the hills, the mountains, and the volcanoes. May the metabolism of the climates of the earth save us. May the turnings of all beings, great and small, move us to find wisdom in our own turnings. May we be saved by our waking and sleeping, by the rhythms of our blood and our appetites, by the cycles of birthing and nurturing, injury and healing, mating and nesting, loss and discovery, joy and mourning. May we find in time the grace to turn to one another, and may this turning also become our salvation. May we learn to benefit the life of the earth with peace, humble in our needs and generous in our giving. May we learn to celebrate the abundance of life with gratitude and to embrace the earth with our bodies in return. Happy so. Thanks, everyone. Good, Yantov. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Be well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.